Well, hello again. This morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, you should be able to find that on page 965. We're in week four of a six-week series on what is a New Testament church. What are those things that the New Testament tells us about the church that should shape our local churches? And this week, we will be considering how Jesus leads his church. And we will do so here from Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. I'd like to remind us that we are, in the worship of God, receivers and responders. So he calls us into his presence, and we respond by singing his praise. Uh, Prayers are offered, and we respond with an amen. And likewise, down through the years, many churches have read the passage to be preached that morning and ended with, thanks be to God, and God's people responding with, or this is the word of the Lord, and God's people responding with, thanks be to God. So we will do that again. Titus 1, 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1993, Albert Moeller walked into his new office as the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for the first time. He'd been called to take a role that was to lead one of the largest seminaries in the country and to turn it back to its founding documents and commitments and convictions. A seminary that had completely shifted and moved away from essential doctrines like inerrancy, authority, scripture, and on and on you could go. He faced many challenges. One of them was that he'd only graduated with his PhD from that seminary four years before and he had no executive experience. Uh, He also arrived to a situation where the students had already organized in protest against him. There's a painful YouTube interview that you can watch uh, of one of his first Q&As there on the campus. Uh, During his first two years there, within his first two years, the entire faculty, save four professors, signed a vote of no confidence against him and tried to remove him from his leadership. And at the graduation that May, in his second year worth of graduation, students refused to shake his hand when they grabbed their diploma. One ripped the diploma from his hand and made an obscene gesture to the audience. It was a hard season to be leading in. But Moeller's leadership through those very challenging years is a wonderful example of what David Wells writes about, about the necessity of biblically faithful Christian leadership. Wells writes this, The fundamental requirement of the Christian leader is not a knowledge of where the stream of popular opinion is flowing, but a knowledge of where the stream of God's truth lies. You see, in this sermon series, I have been trying to show us the impact of the American Revolution and that it has had on us as individual Christians and on churches. But today, we will see also just a bit of how it has had a huge impact on how Christians think about leadership. 
Again, David Wells is superb on this topic, and he puts this, just as politicians hold office in America only by the consent of the sovereign electorate, this idea led to the fact that many church leaders were viewed as being those who fulfilled their responsibilities based off of the popularly held opinions. Democratic leadership in the country and in church. That's, that's what the revolution did in many, many churches. Well, David Wells puts it this way, quote, <clears throat> when the religion's audience, however, is sovereign, it's actually the best pollster who makes the best leader. For all ideas must find their sanction in the audience. See, these so-called leaders are those whose convictions shift with the popular opinion. They lead by holding aloft moist fingers into the air to sense the changing of the wind, David Wells writes. See, in other words, see, since all Americans have an, our understanding of elected leaders, and even as I prayed for our elected leaders to do the will of the people, because that is how our democracy works, the problem has tended to be, in some church circles, we actually map that onto what local church leadership is meant to look like. However, Wells shows that that kind of leadership that gets its authority from the electorate turns out not to be leadership. The reason our political leaders change their minds so often and on topics that seem so fundamental to who they are is because, like the pollster leader, like the one who lifts aloft the moist finger, they're trying to lead by staying ahead of the curve, staying ahead of the popular position. But is that how the Bible understands church leadership? I mean, are the elders simply those who are elected by and represent the will of the people? Or does leadership authority that the elders possess in the church come from somewhere else? In short, the answer we're looking for in this sermon to a question we're seeking to answer is this. What does the New Testament say about the kind of authority that elder pastors have in local church? Well, that's what we'll see here in Titus. There's other passages we could look at, but this one's particularly helpful. And my answer is going to be, it's a firm no, that is not the kind of leadership that the Bible sees elders and pastors having that maps onto our democracy. So my argument this morning is this, Jesus gives gifted men of character the authority to manage and lead or teach his church. Jesus gives gifted men of authority to manage and teach his church. And we'll get this under three points, character, manager, teacher. The reason there's no scripture verses is because we're just going to reread the same passage all three times, so that way we get a feel for this passage and what it's arguing, peeling back the layers of the onion, as it were. So first, Jesus gives gifted men of character. Look again at these verses. Listen for the character comments. Paul writes, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospital, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So first, I say Jesus gives gifted men. Now this has only been controversial really in the last 50 years of the church, but quite literally the Greek says he is to be a one-woman man. It's really clear. Now you wouldn't think it's really clear given the cultural conversation and churches that go around trying to find a way to avoid what the Bible says on this topic, that elder pastors are qualified and called men. 
The amount of ink that has been spilled to try to find a way to justify and wiggle around this very clear issue is incredible. It's just the, the, the volume of books and articles that have been written. It is really amazing. I mean, and even conservative or historically conservative groups have tried to find a way just to, to open the door. So take our own North American Baptist Conference. I, I haven't been able to find the year when they did it, but they changed the requirements to say that um, a woman can't be senior pastor. She can serve in all sorts of other roles that might be called pastor or in some churches even elders, but just not senior pastor. To that, I would just say that is just not what the Bible teaches. It's rather quite clear. And thankfully, many of these more conservative churches and various associations uh, don't go as far as their denomination does. But friends, it is troubling to see the wave that this is going. And it's something that should cause a local church to consider. Is it worth continuing to partner with conferences and organizations that are willing to bend on something so clearly taught in the Bible? Now, to be sure, again, the Bible does not say every man or even most men are called to be elders. Quite the contrary. There's a long list of character requirements. And Lord willing, next week, Pastor Jeff will be looking a bit more about part of this calling that takes place in Ephesians chapter 4. Because elders, pastors, are those who are gifted and given by Jesus to local churches. But first and foremost here, we see that an elder pastor in a local church, he must be gifted and given by Jesus and actually appointed by the Holy Spirit. I'll I'll consider that a little bit later. But these men are given by Jesus because they are men of character. So to put it short, character trumps giftedness every time. Character is the grounds on which men must be called. And that should be the primary ground. It's not popularity, it's character, which is why you have this long list. Uh, Paul says they must be blameless, which is to say no charge can be brought against their character. Now, of course, blamelessness is not to say perfect. Uh, if, if the standard was perfect, then there would be no elders. There would be no churches with pastors. But rather, the point is this, is that elders and pastors, though they sin and stumble like all Christians, they're called to be exemplary in their behavior. They should be able to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ, not perfectly, but faithfully and growing in my following of Christ. In particular, this blamelessness, though, if you notice in the context, it's first applied to his management of his home. As I said, he must be a one-woman man, so he must be blameless in how he leads his home, in his relationship with his wife. But then also, he must be a man, the NIV says, whose children believe. I think that's an unfortunate translation. If you look up that Greek word there in the other pastoral epistles, it actually says faithful. That's the way Paul uses it in the pastoral epistles. So I think a better translation in other English translations is whose children are faithful, and the idea is when they're at home. And here's why I say this, because notice how it continues on. It says, not over, uh, backing up there, not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. That's referring to the children. So the children at home under the father's leadership in his home need to be those who cannot be charged with being wild and disobedient. He has to be able to manage his home well. And that then sets the first standard. If he can't manage his home well, what business does he have managing the household of God? That's what Paul goes on to say there in verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be, repeats the same word, blameless. His leadership in home and his leadership in the church are to be pictures of these things. So, verse 7 then continues to explain what it means for this overseer, this elder pastor, to be blameless in his leadership in the local church. 
And first, it says a bunch of things that he should not be. There's five not behaviors. And the NIV renders the first one, he should not be overbearing. Uh, Other translations, I think, are more helpful. He should not be arrogant. He should not be self-willed. You might put it this way. They must continue to be teachable. They must be correctable. If they are so unwavering and not able to be corrected by God's word, they have no business being an elder pastor in the church. And the rest of these, notice how they, the idea is that they're, they're things that you would see over time. So quick-tempered, that can also be rendered prone to anger, like often making a pattern of this. Uh, there's those to be those who do not sit long at wine or, or are given to drunkenness. The idea then in these negative commands is those things should not pattern his life. That's what it is to be blameless. They cannot be these ongoing, unrepentant sins in an elder's life. Positively then, after stating what negatively he can't be, verse 8 tells us positively what he must be. He must be hospital. Uh, It comes from Greek words meaning welcoming to strangers. Uh, Having people in his home, welcoming them, encouraging them, creating opportunities for people to come and to be friends and to know Jesus. Uh, It's also, he says, he must love what is good, be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These things actually, as we'll see in a minute, should actually pattern his life. Not that he'll ever be perfect in any of these things, because again, there's no such thing as a perfect person, but they should pattern his life. So first and foremost, the application is to myself and my fellow elders and those to aspire to be elders. Brothers, how does our lives reflect these character requirements that Paul gives here? Brother elders, I know as we talk about these things regularly, and as Jeff said earlier, this list can be daunting. It sets a high bar, and rightfully so. To serve God's people as a leader is a calling in and of itself that we will never be able to be fit for in and of ourselves. So it's a calling to be constantly dependent upon the Holy Spirit, interceding for these saints, asking for the Holy Spirit's equipping and filling and empowering us to serve So brothers, do you pray through this list? Do do you evaluate yourself based off of the list here in Titus and in 1 Timothy 3 and in in 1 Peter 5? Do you, as you are thinking through these things, say, Lord, help me. Help me to overcome that sin, to put that sin to death. And Lord, I failed in this situation. Help me to repent and confess. Men, do these things shape your life more and more as you're going? Because they must, because those are qualifications. And first and foremost, elders are qualified men of character. But also to the whole church, these elder qualifications are also found, all of them, save for in Timothy 3, where it talks about the ability to teach, they're actually addressed to all Christians also. So on the other hand, there's something that's not all that remarkable about them, and just this is just what Christians should look like. So it's true, elders are to be exemplary, they're to have lives that should be exampled and be patterned after, but also... The point is is that the members of the church can model, or they can follow, they can be living these things out. I mean, all Christians are commanded to be self-controlled, not to be quick-tempered, not to be arrogant, not to be drunkards, violent. All Christians are called to be hospitable, to be welcoming each other into their homes and self-controlled, again, holy, upright, and so forth. Which is why I remind us often, and will continue to do so, that, friends, our default mode in the church should always be one of gentle forgiveness. Because, friends, we're going to fail each other often. Uh, we're going to say things, and whether I intend it or not, it's, it's going to hit the wrong way, and it's going to create frustration. And so our first mode should be one of careful, gentle 
forgiveness. We should assume the best. I mean, maybe the reason why the person responded in a curt way was because they just didn't sleep last night or the night before. Or maybe they're physically suffering. We assume, we start with love. We start with gentleness and forgiveness. Now, on the other hand, if someone has a pattern that continues on, well, then also at the same time, we must address it. It's unloving to not address those things in someone's life, as we have seen. So just because we have these types of lists in the Bible that tell us how we are to live, and we see someone who doesn't meet one, that doesn't mean you jump on them. It means you lovingly walk with them. You you seek to cover up as much as you can and forgive. But as a pattern develops, then you seek to gently, lovingly correct. And heaven forbid, we as Christians, we are those with the message we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would ever have a judgmental tit-for-tat posture with our fellow Christians on our disagreements. Now may love and forgiveness be the heartbeat of the church for elders and their love and service for the church and for the members towards their leaders and toward each other as well. Well, so, so far for the character of the elders, but now we will press on. Jesus gives gifted men of character and he gives gifted men of character who serve as managers. Let's read these verses again, five through nine. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient, since an overseer manages God's household. He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So it's important to notice Paul says something here that is probably a little stunning. He says this act of Titus appointing elders, without having done it, it's left these churches in something of an unfinished state. Complete what was left unfinished. Now, we know a church can be a church without elders. Paul plants churches in Acts, and he plants them, and then he comes back a couple months later and installs elders. But in other words, there's a sense in which a local church without gifted, qualified, called elders, pastors, teachers in a church, there's something unfinished about it. It, It's needed. God has appointed and authorized managers, teachers, leaders in his local church. And I mentioned, if, if you were to turn, well, we won't, but uh, to uh, Acts chapter 20, there's this wonderful conversation that Paul has with the Ephesian elders. And in that conversation, he knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows he'll never see them again. And what he says to them is he tells them, you have been appointed, or the word could be, you have been made elders by the Holy Spirit. And again, next week in Ephesians 4, uh, Lord willing, you'll see how it says Jesus gives gifted men to the church to serve as pastor, teachers, elder, pastor, teacher, overseers. They're all used interchangeably. So the idea then that elders are elected in a local church to represent the will of the people is just not here. I mean, look at the language that he uses here. He sees leaders as essential elements of a local church. There's something unfinished about it until they're there. And as we've said throughout the series, only Jesus can build his end-time assembly, and likewise, only Jesus and the Holy Spirit can gift, appoint, or make men elders. But we've also seen how Jesus' authority was passed on to Peter and the apostles, and then it was passed on to local churches. 
And here, Paul grants Titus, this apostolic delegate, as it were, this authority to appoint a plurality of elders in each local church. But it's important to know that word that Paul uses for appoint there is the same word used in Acts 6, where the apostles tell the church to choose qualified men to serve as deacons, and the kind of the proto-deacons, as it were. And the congregation, they choose these seven men, and then the apostles appointed them as deacons. Same word, these men to serve. So do you see the pattern then? It's the same pattern we've been seeing all along. As Jesus with the keys being handed off to Peter and the apostles, and then later to established churches, that's what we're seeing here. Paul sends Titus, the apostolic delegate, to wield the keys of the kingdom to appoint those elders in local churches, but those keys are going to be handed off. That authority is eventually going to be handed off to the local church. Once those local churches are fully established, then now that local church is to wield the keys of the kingdom. They're to bring people in and remove them, and the same goes for leaders. You can read about this in Galatians 1, 6 through 10. And Paul writes to these local churches in Galatia and says, If anybody teaches you a false gospel, let them be under God's curse. Which is to say, don't listen to them. Don't allow them to keep speaking. You churches have the authority to do that. That's the implication. Likewise, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 19-20. We read that while churches must only entertain an accusation against an elder if it's confirmed by two or three people... If that accusation proves true, then that elder is to be rebuked before the whole church since they're the ones who have the authority to remove him. Only that local church does. So there's this wonderful balance then in how the New Testament pictures leadership in the local church. On the one hand, the local church has the authority to recognize and appoint their elder pastors, the ones who've been given to them by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, by watching their gifting, by seeing how they serve. And on the other hand, that authority the elders possess does not come from the church. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the Holy Spirit. That's why when you get to Hebrews 13, 17, it commands Christians, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. See, it's God who appoints and oversees elders to lead and manage the church. That's why they're called overseers here, managers, elsewhere, shepherds or pastors, they don't follow the will of the people. They lead, they manage, they oversee. Even in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it uses the word rule. It says those elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. So it's important then to note that the structure of the local church has to recognize both authorities that have been given. There's an authority that God gives to elders, pastors, teachers, shepherds, leaders in the church that is real. And everybody will answer to Jesus for how they respond to that authority. And likewise, there's authority given to local church and those members that is real. And we'll all answer for how we wield that authority. So just as it would be an abuse of Jesus' authority not to allow church members to have the final say on bringing people in or putting them out, it would also be a misuse of Jesus' authority to try and parse off some of the elders' call to lead and manage the local church. So let me use Bethany as an example. If you love reading nerdy historic church documents, come and hang out. Uh, I'll make some coffee, and we can do so. It will be thrilling, I assure you. Uh, in 1943, that's the first documents we have that switched to English. Before that, they were in German, and I haven't found the translations yet. But uh, starting in 1943 and all the way up until the year 1997, this church operated on a very common model that was used in Baptist churches in those days. They had a pastor or pastors 
They had a deacon board, a trustee board, and then they had their officers, and the officer included both an organist and a backup organist, just in case, so you know, you were covered. The problem, though, with that structure, even though it was very, very common throughout the 20th century in Baptist churches is, it is already one step removed from what the Bible teaches. Because all of a sudden, the plurality of pastors was optional. And it was the deacons and trustees and this board-type system and committee system that was ruling the church and leading the church. But that's clearly not what he says. He says elders manage, oversee, they lead the church. Well, then in 1997, this church shifted to what, can be what was called an overseer model. Now, we just read Titus uh, in Titus where he says the overseers are the pastors, they are the elders. But that's not what they meant when they said overseers. Essentially, what the overseer model was is each ministry had a, a head, a ministry head, and those ministry heads represented those ministries kind of, uh, and they would serve on the overseer board. The problem, though, was that the NAB, our association at that time, was pushing the church to kind of remove power from the, the church. Because let's just be honest, congregationalism is slow. It takes a long time. And when this neighborhood's growing like crazy, all of a sudden it's like, hey, leaders, try and just, you know, move the ball down the field a little faster. So let's not, let's try and de-congregationalize uh, this church a little bit. And so what happened was, is that's kind of what happened. They got that advice from their conference, and so they started to try and pull the power away from the church a little bit, even on things that only the church should have control over. Well, that led to about 17 years ago to a very painful church split. And the difficulty was compounded by the fact that their pastor had just resigned shortly before. And so what happens, the church is pastorless, they're in the middle of an interim period, their denomination is not helping them because they've been giving them unbiblical advice to, to move in an unbiblical direction in their documents. So what do you do? Well, you had a group of faithful members who sat down and tried to see, well, the Bible says elders, the Bible says deacons, let's make sure we have those. And yet, they had been really wounded by leaders. And so what happens was, is they set up elders and then they parsed out their authority to all these different groups. So the elders are always outnumbered by the deacons, and they join together to be on a council. But they're always outnumbered, so they can always be overvoted. And then they took their other leadership roles, and they parsed them out to different ministry teams or to committees. Every single one of those, if you just read our 88-page constitution, which I've read many times, it will show you it's basically all those things exist to do what the elders are called to do. But because at that time they had just been very wounded by their leaders, they set up a situation where they said, we need to have elders and deacons, but we just don't have elders right now, and we don't know how long it's going to take to develop them. And so they set up their current constitution. So I tell you all that history just to say this, is practically, friends, the Bible is actually really, really clear. It is elders, pastors, overseers, leaders, managers, even rule in some sense in the church. That authority is real. And if we try and have a church structure that, that parses off what elders are given and told to do in the Bible, we have a sub-biblical structure. So in this season, as we've been saying, the elders are prayerfully working through and planning to present uh, a, a recommendation for changes because only the church has the final say on those types of things. Uh, we are seeking to be fully biblical, to go back to saying, no, the Bible actually gives us a structure. It says leaders lead. The Bible knows nothing of committees and ministry teams and all the rest of that. No, it has elders, and it has deacons who serve at the pleasure of the elders and at the affirmation of the church. So, practically then, as the elders have been studying these things, again, pray for us as we do so, and as a good congregational church should, the elders will present a plan to the church, and we'll discuss it and talk about it, because only the church has the authority to change those documents, and that's the way it should be. All right, well, we've seen this point. What Jesus is doing here, though, is he is giving 
authority, a certain and definitive authority only to elders, pastors, managers, leaders, overseers in the church. And the members are called to love and trust and pray for their elders, pastors, teachers. Even submit to and obey them, Hebrews 13, 17 says. So notice, friends, that's not an option. That's a command of God. Insofar as those elders are teaching God's word faithfully, it's not an option to submit to them. Which raises a really important individual point of application. You see, if all Christians are those who are to have leaders that they submit to, that means we're back once again to this idea of church membership. There has to be some mechanism of recognizing those are my leaders. If you don't have that mechanism, then there's a problem because they're not really your leaders. Because the first time they challenge you, as the Bible tells them they're going to do, he's going to say, rebuke and refute, you can just say, well, I'm out. So see, we're back around to this same thing again we've seen over and over again. But another personal point of application that I, that I think is worth thinking about this is, Christian, if you are not in a situation where you have leaders that you're submitted to through a mechanism of church membership, why? This is clearly required. The logic is like math. You have to have it. If you have leaders, you have to have some mechanism of submitting to those leaders. And friends, I know the worries because, look, there are no perfect churches. There are no perfect leaders. So if you're waiting for the church to have perfect leaders and perfect churches, then you're never going to actually join a church because that doesn't exist. It will exist in the New Jerusalem because then Jesus will be the leader. And finally, we will have a perfect pastor, as Peter calls him, the chief shepherd. And praise God, then all of our little picadillos and all of our problems will be gone and we'll be perfected. Praise God. Hallelujah. I can't wait. But my hope is this, friend, that you're seeing in this series, this, these matters of church membership, these matters of authority is not my opinion. They're right here in the text. If you have to submit to leaders, you have to have leaders. And likewise, those leaders have to be able to lead. And they have to lead us something, which is why pastor, shepherd, flock of sheep is another really helpful way of getting at this same point. A pastor, a shepherd, doesn't shepherd all the sheep who just happen to show up. And he has his sheep, and he cares for, and loves for, and provides for and protects his sheep. Well, we've seen Jesus gives gifted men of character to a church to manage and lead it, and the primary way that they're called to lead is actually by teaching. Our last point, teachers. One more time, Titus 1, 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who Pose it. So again, local churches would in some sense be unfinished without the Jesus-given, Holy Spirit-appointed elder, pastors, teachers, and so Paul sends Titus there to appoint them. Now last week we saw in our conversation of the Great Commission, the Great Commission is a call to plant churches. Churches make disciples by baptizing people and teaching them. So notice, in the New Testament there's no such thing as an unbaptized, untaught Christian 
That's what it is to be a disciple. And we saw also in the Great Commission that Jesus' call to plant local churches is that those local churches have the authority to do so. But pastor teachers, we learn, are the ones who lead the church to use its authority. So while all Christians are called to love and serve each other, it's only, though, elder pastors who are required to be teachers, to teach them how to use the keys of the kingdom. And so while it's absolutely true that every Christian is called to be a theologian, really, every Christian is to be a church-shaped theologian. Friends, primarily, your biblical learning, your theological learning is primarily meant to be bound up with your local church and with that pastor that the Holy Spirit has appointed and that God has given, which raises some important issues that both elders and members should consider. Let's do members first. What this does not mean, of course, is that you should not learn from other pastors and theologians. I have many pastors and theologians that I have been so blessed by, and I encourage you, read widely, yes, yes, and praise God. But primarily, Christians are to be taught by their pastors, and their pastors are committed to teach them Uh, I really get worried about pastors who gallivant around the country doing all sorts of preaching and all sorts of these things. Pastors pastor their sheep. They should be with their sheep. I understand why it might happen occasionally, but that's our calling. So, while it doesn't mean you shouldn't learn from other pastors, the fact that the Great Commission is bound up with the local church and being taught by the teachers Jesus gives in that local church means that your pastors are your primary theologians. Our discipleship, as we said, is primarily bound up with these people in this church. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to have other Christian relationships and and people we learn from, of course. But notice how Jesus designed it. Jesus designed Christians to be together, to be shaped by a pastor somewhere and those members to love them and serve them. He designed us not to sit at the feet of some preacher that we've never met and never will meet. Friends, I listen to other pastors and they bless me greatly but they've never prayed for me by name. I'm so grateful for many other pastors that you can listen to and will be encouraged and fed by, but friend, they've never prayed for you. They don't read God's word with a picture of you in a directory and say, Lord, would you grow this person in grace this week? That's what your pastors strive to do. We pray through the directory. We pray for you by name. Those other pastors who may have totally blessed you with that sermon that changed your life, friends, they're not gonna be there when children and grandchildren are born. When they graduate, when they get married, they're not going to be there when you get the cancer diagnosis or when someone dies. That is why we have pastors, shepherds who care for and love the sheep. And what is essential to be a member of a local church is ensuring that you can learn from and submit to those pastors. Because obviously, if you can't, that's only going to hinder you and your walk. So let me get really personal for a minute. I typically don't like to do this, but I'm going to for this topic. If you've spent any time with me at all, I know this will come as a surprise to you, but I'm a really big nerd. I mean, I have like sort of two hobbies. I occasionally play bad golf and I read a lot of books that most of you have never and will never hear of. I'm just a big nerd. So here's the thing. I know that. And that's not an excuse for me to say I shouldn't keep growing and try to, try to be a better preacher and a communicator and pastor. No, no, no. But as I say is, at a certain point, I'm, I, just, I just am me. I mean, has anybody gotten to that point in their life? You're like, I just, you know, Jesus, keep fixing me, but I'm just me. So here's my point, though. Friend, if, if my preaching ministry is not helpful for you, it is the most loving thing I can do to help you find a place where you will be fed and will be cared for. 
It, it really concerns me when people and churches try to like cling to everyone who comes in and they bend and mold into like jello to try and make every single person happy. My dad had all sorts of fun little sayings, but that was one of them. You can please all of the people none of the time. And so, friend, that's just where we're at. I'm going to continue to try and grow. Give me feedback, yes, and amen. But, friend, if I don't help you, it's the most unloving thing in the world for me to tell you, keep coming and keep being not helped. No, find a church where you're well served. Find a church where you can be a learner, a disciple, to be taught. That's what the Bible teaches. There's this very weird, modern, strange, and very unbiblical idea that we treat the church like an a la carte menu. Uh, so, I, you know, it's like on Google Maps, you type in food, and it'll give you every food and different options. Like, well, I'll go to this church because I want, you know, breakfast, and that church for, for worship, and this church for that. Friends, that is not the picture. We are members of Christ's body in one place. So find a church and be a member of that body. Learn from, submit to those teachers and pastors and love those members. If you don't do that, you're only hurting yourself. Well, now some application for my fellow elders and the men who aspire to the office of elder. Friends, if, if Jesus' design and plan for the local church is that we be the primary theologians and teachers and pastors for that local church, then yes, on the one hand, of course, we're never going to have perfect theology, but we'd better be committed to pressing on and learning and growing. I mean, to put more sharply, my fellow elder, the moment you get bored or tired of pressing on in your study of God is the moment you need to retire from being an elder. And that's not a bad thing. But the call on us is to be the primary pastors and theologians and teachers of the church, which means we have to press on. That's why Paul uses the language he does here, the trustworthy message as it has been taught, assuming history. That's why Jude 3 says, to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, down through history. Friends, theological novelty, new theology is almost always universally bad. If somebody came up with an idea that's new, I instantly get nervous, and so should you. That's not to say that theology doesn't get sharpened, but there's a reason why Paul says sound doctrine taught down through the ages also means if your theology is internally inconsistent, it's bad theology. Just think about what it means to be an understander. There's a visual in that word. We stand under the word. If we show up to the word and stand over it and say and fit it into our ideas, we are not understanding. We're overstanding. So elders and those desire who to be elders, this is our calling to press on to be those who teach the trustworthy message as it has been taught down through the ages. And verse 9 says, so that we do it for this purpose, for the elder pastors in the local churches to encourage people with sound doctrine. Doctrine should lead to doxology. Thoughts about God and the Trinity and Jesus should lead to worship. And we also have to refute those who oppose it. That is part of the calling. It's the uncomfortable part of the calling, but it must be done. Well, we could go on for much longer. But let me wrap this up by showing you one of the things that Paul says is part of the sound doctrine that must be taught. If you look at chapter 2, he actually begins and says, you must teach with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to say, there's particular sound doctrine that gets applied to particular people. First to older men and then older women and then younger women and younger men and slaves and masters or servants and masters. Yes, he addresses them all. But then in Titus 2, 11 through 15, he summarizes one of these beautiful cores of what is sound doctrine. 
Titus 2, 11 through 15. Four. So this is grounding his argument. What he's saying is so far, here's why you teach sound doctrine and what you teach to these people, and here's why you teach it. Why must you teach good theology and Bible? Because of this. Because, four, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. This then, these then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Do you see this wonderful summary of the gospel? And friends, all of us are to treasure this gospel. But this is what elders must teach. They must correct with it. Uh, We're to teach about the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus' first coming. Uh, That the eternal God took on the flesh of his creature who has committed treason against him to purify a people for himself, to redeem them, to buy them back from their wickedness. This is the message, friends, that we are to build our lives on together as members of a local church. And we're to do so while we await the full and final revelation appearing, which comes with the blessed hope. The return of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his first coming, he came, yes, to to redeem himself, to go to a cross, to die for sinners, so that all who repent and trust in him will be saved. But he'll come back. And when he comes back, friends, that is our blessed hope. So in the meantime, we hold on and we hope and wait for this blessed hope. We cling to the fact that Jesus will return and our faith will finally give way to sight. That on that day, there'll be no more sorrows and sufferings then our physical bodies will be replaced and the pains will go be gone. That's our blessed hope. And it is also this message of this blessed hope that we're to teach and we're to correct with, to rebuke those who refuse to submit to Jesus' authority, to help them to see, don't you want to serve a king like that? And don't you want to serve him wholeheartedly? Not redefine how you serve him based off of what you prefer And friends, the message of this sermon series, and I would argue the New Testament is this. It's not our message. We declare Jesus as king. And as king, he calls people to repent and be baptized and be added to local churches where they learn from and love those pastors and serve and care for each other. And those pastors teach and instruct and remind us again and again that the grace of God has appeared in Christ. So look to him. And link arms with each other as we await his return and the blessed hope. Because this is the very thing we're going to close the service and singing about. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That is the work Jesus does of building his church, of uniting us together, giving us leaders to love and care for and teach us so that we can go and be a light to the world around us. May it be said of us. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, how it both encourages and instructs, how it both corrects and it guides. And Lord, would that be true as we consider these things? And Lord, would you help us as the elders and pastors of this church to love and teach and serve well? And Lord, would you continue to grow and call and train other elders to serve this church, to love and care for this church? Uh, Lord, we need you as your Spirit's appointing work, uh, Lord, to call and to equip us for this task. And Lord, as a church, would you help us to love each other well, uh, to be those who see it as a joy to submit to our King. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.